This is my Bible. Oh, I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it is all that I need. Right. Right, as we turn to Matthew chapter 20, Jesus has a lot of teaching going on in this chapter as well. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. And we've all heard this parable. And when you first read it without trying to figure out what what Jesus is trying to say here, it just looks like the most unfair situation possible. So as we go through it, try to try to sense what Jesus' message, what he's trying to talk about here. He said, it's like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So he, he said, I will pay you a denarius for a day's work. And I want you to know, I checked on that, and that is an average day's wage. So he wasn't trying to jip them. This was, this was fair. So when they accepted a denarius for a day's work, that was perfectly acceptable. No one was bellyaching. No one was complaining because this was the this was the going rate. Okay, about the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour. So you're talking every three hours now, you know, that the other ones have been working. And then um, now the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? And the answer in verse 7 was, because no one has hired us, they answered. Now, he's starting to put the pieces together. And as we know that as the hour gets closer and closer to the end of the day, what are we talking about? The end of this age. Every day is a day closer. Now, what did you think that they meant And what do you think Jesus is trying to get in this parable? What is he trying to get us to see when they answered? Because when he said, well, how come you're staying around here? How come you're not doing anything? Because no one has hired us, they answered. Now, what do you think that means? People are standing there. They are. They don't know Jesus. They they haven't a clue to what's going on. Why? Because no one's told him. This is why no one no one no one asked me. No one hired me. No one told me about it. And he's saying, this is why. That's why some people are coming in at different hours, and it's getting later and later. And we're running out of time. And the problem is they haven't been asked. They haven't been invited. They haven't been told. Time is running out. 
And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Okay, now you've got someone who started at the beginning of the day, you know, third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, eleventh hour. You're talking. They only are working one hour. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their, their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. I'm sure when, when you watch these people lining up for their wages and, and the people who've worked all day, they see that the 11th hour people and then the 9th hour people, they're getting their denarius. I'm sure that they thought for, when, they, when, the, when the foreman came to them, they would get at least two. But no, no, out of that coin purse came one denarius. Oh, then it all broke loose. And, and again, if you're only seeing with physical eyes into this parable, like, well, my thing, most parables, you can see things with your earthly eyes as marvelous as they are. They're limited in understanding. And when you, when you see things with your spiritual eyes, then you start catching the whole meaning of this. Now, when you're just looking at it in physical eyes, this is about as unfair as it gets. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when they came, who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. Now, what does Jesus want you and I to see here? What is the overall? The overall of this parable is when you have been invited to Christ and when you come. And some have done it when they were a child. I know for me, I was 10 years old, and I know that my reward, my reward, now I know that there's going to be awards, different awards for everybody, because what we've done in the body, we will be awarded for, but our ultimate reward for our salvation, our belief in Jesus, our humbling walk to the cross, knowing that we're sinners in need of grace. This whole parable just reeks with grace because there is no one person, no matter they, whether they worked the whole day or whether they worked for an hour, they deserved nothing. What did we deserve? What did you and I deserve? In the scope of things, we deserve nothing but eternal death. But look how bent out of shape, you know, we get. Look at the, I'm, I'm, my reward is that I am going to be with Jesus forever. I'm going to be a part of the new heaven and the new earth but the thing is, the person who on their deathbed lived, I mean, a riotous life. I mean, they were a piece of work. And they they just rebelled and said no and probably blasphemed in his name. But remember what Jesus said, even those who blaspheme my name, 
If they come to me and ask forgiveness, I will forgive. Only the sin against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin because it's when the Holy Spirit is whispering salvation in your ear and you refuse it. That's why it, you can't have forgiveness when you don't receive it. When you don't receive what he's offered. So we're, we're looking at this and someone who may be on their deathbed all of a sudden says, I believe in Jesus and they take their last breath and guess what? They're, they're going to the same place as, as me and I've been living this since I was 10 years old. And you can look at that and you can say, you know what, that's just not fair. Or you can flip it and say, but look what I've been living since I was 10. Look at the grace that I've experienced since I was 10. Look at the abundant life I've experienced since I was 10. Look what the fruit of the Spirit in my life is since I was 10. Look at the hope that I've been hanging on to since I was 10. Look what I know is the word of God and it's everything that I need since I was 10. And that poor person that on their deathbed, yes, they get the same reward, but look what they missed. Because they had put themselves first their whole life and what, what contents or satisfies a life, only those lives lived for Christ. When you live your life for Christ, that's when you know what real living is. That's when you know what contented living is. That's when you know that you're satisfied because he's enough. That is a, how many times don't I, I say to you when we close, and that's a great way to live. I mean, every time we learn something new, I'm thinking, and that's a great way to live. To be able to know that, to be able to live that, to be able to believe that. To be able to take those promises and, and what I prayed tonight for some, that I was able to pray a couple of times. Lord, they're going to know that your promises, that you will never leave them. You'll walk right through this with, to know that's true. I just as soon know that since I was 10. I just soon get to know that more. Because some that say, well, you know what? I'm just going to live like crazy. I'm just going to live the way I want. And, and no one's going to tell me what to do. And they think that that's freedom. But they've been living in, in, the, in the, the hold of sin. And they didn't realize it. They've been living in bondage. You and me, when we've been to the cross, we live in freedom. To know that we've been set free. I just don't live in freedom all these years. And this is what Jesus is saying in this parable. Look at things in your spiritual eyes. Listen to things with your spiritual ears. That's real living. But he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? I had you answer that question. What does that verse mean? What does that verse mean? When you look at that verse, 
15, and you can hear Jesus say, don't I have a right? What does he have a right to do? What does he have, what did he have a right to do? He had a right to send us all to hell. He had a right. Because we didn't follow the, the, we didn't follow the deal. And he had every right. And that 15, don't I have a right to do? He does. He has a right to do whatever he wanted to do. But look, look at what we have. That whole thing with grace and mercy. With grace, I, I, I have what I don't deserve. And mercy is, I don't have what I do deserve. I mean, I just love the beauty of those two words. Both, both really say, we don't deserve anything. And he says, don't I have a right? I mean, he could have said nothing doing, but instead, look at all what we have. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. You know, last week I kind of ended telling you the story about that, the, the story about that preacher that just preached up a storm, and, and one night in, in a vision he was told, you're not, you might not get the reward you think you're going to get. <laughs> And he says, well, you know, not that he's not going to get a reward because, of course, he'll get a reward. But when Jesus says the last will be first and the first will be last, he's just saying, just don't always look at it through your physical eyes because I have a way of rewarding perfectly. And so when that way, well, who's going to get that reward? Well, you know, it's that person that sat on those steps and prayed for you every time you went up to preach. Don't ever underestimate. Maybe you're not flamboyant. Maybe not everybody's seen your work for God's kingdom, but yes. And those kind of verses just kind of remind us, don't ever underestimate. Don't ever underestimate whatever work you do. So now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took 12 disciples aside. He took them again. He took them aside. And he knows that that this is a hard pill to swallow. He knows this is not getting through. And I had you look at this, and I wanted you to put your own name in there because of three words in particular. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged and to be crucified. And I don't know why I just felt like I should ask that question about uh, about that because I think we read it too fast and we don't realize that he was mocked, he was flogged and he was crucified for me. I mean now he he is saying words 
See, he hasn't said these words before. Every time he talks about his, his death, he's getting a little more intimate detail. And now they're here, and, and I mean, e- any of those three would be terrible, but it put them all together, mocked, flogged, crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. He always says that. Now, when Jesus says that about his death, and then he always comes back with, with and I will be raised, I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, you know, I really think that sometimes in our hardships, we get so caught up in the hardship that we can't see beyond. We can't see that there's a, a greater purpose or a greater cause or a greater reason and that he's going to use us in a particular way that we never thought possible through this suffering but what do we know? What did, what did Paul say in Romans 5 when he was trying to describe our trials and our sufferings? He said, if you let it, it will cause you to persevere, and it will always give you a hope. You always have hope. Now, when you are just looking at your suffering and you are stuck in that, things look hopeless. I think when Jesus talks this way, he's saying, and you can almost see it in the disciples, you can get so stuck in the suffering that you don't see the hope. Because there always is. Paul said, hope will never disappoint you, but you've got to choose to hold on to it. And as human beings, we get so caught up in, our, in, in the suffering and that we just think, that's it, and it's, it's just I'm miserable and I'm hopeless and, and I'm doomed and all those words that just sink us to the pit. But we forget because we're so stuck. We forget just like they wouldn't see, but in three days I'm going to rise again. I mean, you would almost, I said this before, you would think if they heard that, they would say, boy, that's going to be something to see. At least they would have hope, you know, yes, you're going to be put to death, but death, but, but you're going to come back to life. But that's, that's going to be something. But look, I mean, and I think that's so human. How many of us get so stuck in our, in our hardship that we can't hear and listen to the hope that he's always given us? Like, I'll be there. My will's perfect. I know what I'm doing. I'm up to something. For you can know that in all things, I'm working for the good of those who love me. You know, all those things are right there. Are we going to reach out and hear them? Because there's your lifeline. That's my lifeline. Hope is always the lifeline. And what is, what is our faith? Faith is hope and what we can't see. You just know. You know what you're sure of? You're not sure of your circumstances. You're not sure of how this is going to turn out, and especially for good, but you're just sure of him. 
Hope isn't something. Hope is someone. I just saw that. I think, you know, how much do we miss when in our human, in our humanness, look at how in this chapter, look at the fight against human nature and hearing the real meaning and the hope of it all. I mean, you look at that first parable and you think, oh, that's unfair, that's terrible. But if you would look and see the hope of it, he's saying, you deserve nothing, but look at your God instead. Here, yes, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise. But how often do you get stuck? Look at the fight of our human nature. Look how human nature can take us down and we miss the hope. All right, then then here's another human nature. This chapter was just loaded with typical, understandable emotions. The natural, when left to yourself, these are the natural ways of looking at the, here comes mama. And every one of us moms can understand I mean, she's thinking, hey, you know what? I've given up my boys for for three years for this, you know? And so she comes and she takes, it's kind of funny. These are grown men. It's almost like mama's got them each by the hand. Let's go talk to them, you know? And because it says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, of course, James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, yep. And then kneeling down, asked a favor of him. Jesus says, what is it you want? He knew what was coming. And I can almost I could almost see it in Jesus' mind. He was saying, I thought we handled this already. But look how how quick human nature wants it's all about being great here. See, in their minds they're still thinking Jesus is gonna rise to the king the kingship of over Rome and they were good. they're gonna they're gonna have their places of honor and popularity and that's what they're envisioning yet she says grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom I think she was a wise mom. Not only did she want one of her boys on each side of him, I also also think she knew, don't put them together. (laughs) They're brothers. So put one on this side and one on that side. How many of you had to separate your kids in church? Um, One was on one side and the other. So I don't know whether they were rascals of boys, but I think she wanted her boys to be in the place of prominence. But is there any mom here that doesn't want your kids to, to, to find a place of comfort and happiness and easy living? And, and uh, well, we do. Sometimes we just, you think about how you learned. You think, I mean, I was talking to somebody tonight about if it hadn't been for the sufferings in our life, where would, would we be where we are? It's the sufferings in our lives that mold us, that make us into what he wants us to be because we wouldn't go there otherwise. We've got to get to the point where we throw up our hands. We finally let him lead and guide. We wouldn't do that if, if 
we didn't throw up our hands because we would still be maneuvering. It's our sufferings that have really done it. And here Jesus comes back and says, you don't even know what you're asking. Because you are so wrong in your minds on how you think this is all going to end up. You are closing it off because you want to only see what you want to see, hear what you want to hear. You haven't even been listening to what I'm trying to tell you. It's not going to be pretty. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And I don't think it really took them long at all to look look what their answer was. We can. Because in their minds, of course again, oh, one of us on each side and you're, we're going to be popular and, and you know, everybody's going to look up to us because we're going to have that, that place of prominence and um, great. We're going to be great in the world's eyes, in the people's eyes, what they think of us. And Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my cup. You will indeed drink. I wonder, I wonder, did, did you know that James was the very first martyr? James was the first martyr for the cause of Christ. And John, of course, we know that he was put on the island of Patmos. There is a people person. I don't think we under, I think we underestimate that, wow, what torture that was for that man. John, he was the preacher of the Ephesus church. I mean, he was a people person. And what did they do? They put him on the island all by himself in a damp cave. I think, I think that was a martyrdom all in itself for him. but oh, how the Lord used him because it says he chose not to go down into defeat, but he chose to always hold on to the hope. And when he turned, when he heard the voice behind him, he turned. And he said, I saw with my own eyes and I heard with my own ears. And then he described what he saw. And then he writes those 22 chapters of hope for you and I. My goodness. But you talk about, was it an easy life? So when Jesus said, oh, you will indeed drink from my cup, because what is Jesus' cup? It's the cup of suffering. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. There are some things Jesus says I don't even have control over. What else do you know that Jesus doesn't know that only the Father knows? The day of his return. See, there are some things. He is just very confident that this is in his Father's hands. When the ten heard about this, see, now you've got um, Mama and James and John, and then, you know, off to the side are the other ten who are thinking about, hey, that's not right. So the word indignant, the other ten become indignant. Now, why do you think they're indignant? Because why? They want that place. 
If ever a piece of scripture was easy to understand, it was this one. I don't think any of us have any hard time understanding the emotions that are going on right now. And if you don't think that humans battle this, this is a major battle. Jesus called them all together, and it's like he said, I'm going to have to go over this again because you totally have not heard about what I consider great. Remember, in the last couple chapters, what did he try to explain to What did he bring over to try to describe what greatness was? A child. He brought over a child. And he tried to say, Greatness to me is one who humbles himself. Now that too is the opposite of what the world's definition of greatness is. And now he's even going to explain it, I think, even better. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Oh, people love their power. Look at the rich young ruler last week. That man had everything this world had to offer. At least in our mind, in our human minds, we think, boy, you've arrived. If you've got all that kind of money, you've got your youth and your health and your life ahead of you, and you're, you've been given power. I mean, even the disciples said, man, if he can't be saved, who can? It just shows how human nature is so grounded to the definition of success and greatness. You've got to be somebody and so Jesus says, okay, I'm going to put it this way. I, I know you all understand about, you know, how people lord over and high officials and everybody wants these big positions and not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the Son of Man. Now, he couldn't have given any better example of, of what greatness really looks like because he says here, just as the Son of Man, we know that he's the Son of Man, but he's also the Son of God. He left heaven. He was equal Godhead. We understand that. He left heaven, came here. He's still God, even though he's in the form of man if anybody should have been called great and should have been served, they don't come any greater than God Almighty. And he's saying, I'm God Almighty. They don't come any greater. That's why his example is so perfect for us because he says, just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but instead to serve. And then here, here, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I say it, I pray it, but this is one, I mean, are we willing to say, Lord, use my life in whatever shape or form you need to use it? I mean, how, how we fight that human impulse of comfort and happy and 
earthly greatness and success. And that's why I said, how often don't we pray for our children? Oh, and we want, we want a good job, and we want this. And you just have a list a mile long of what you want for your children so why they can live on easy street, that they can have a great house, that they can have a nice car, that they can be somebody. And Jesus is saying, would you stop? Stop that, praying like that. Pray that they know me, that they want to know me more, and that I'm a priority to them, that they don't get stuck in the trap of thinking that all their eggs are in this basket. And do you think, I mean, it is all around us, everywhere. And Jesus is saying, I mean, look, I'm the greatest there is, and I came to serve. Have you ever served? And and you know, you maybe didn't get any recognition for it. The thing is, how did you feel? When you did something and you didn't even have one person realize except the one that you served, that no one knew, you know what? The Lord knew. And what does it, he sees to it that you and I, there is a satisfaction. There is a, a joy, unspeakable joy. Okay, now I'm going to flip it and say to you, what is selfish and self-consumed and self-centered and all about me? What kind of person is that? Did you ever look at the, their facial expression? It's totally absent of joy. I know this world is just confused about that. They think when it's all about me, they think that's when I'm going to be satisfied and, satisfied and content. When I attain this, when I get... They have no idea that that's, it's going to be more and more miserable. That's how confused this world is, and that, that's how opposite Jesus is trying to explain in Matthew 20. I think he's just trying to absolutely flip our lives right, right over because we've been conditioned to live this way for so long in this chapter I think he totally flips us right over and says I want you to totally live different I don't know if you realize the songs tonight it started out with I heard an old old story you heard that story and if you said yes then there is victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me. Yeah, like that 99 and the one wandered last week. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I, before I even knew him. And now all my love is due him. I love this line. He plunged me to victory beneath his cleansing blood. And then Jesus paid it all. 
And then did you notice that one verse that says, nothing good have I, whereby thy grace decline. See, when you get a hold of that, See, that's why when he said, when you really understand what I have forgiven you from and what grace really means and where you would be without it and you didn't deserve any of it, but because, but because I, of my unconditional love, you have it all by just a mere yes. But when you grab, grab a hold of that and you start understanding that more and more, then you can say, oh, the least I can do is serve you because I love you, because only you have given life to me. I was nothing before you found me. Boy, there wasn't a truer statement than that. See, but you got to flip to this side because, boy, we're trying to think, oh, what do you mean I'm nothing? I want to be somebody. But in all reality, I was nothing before he found me and made me somebody. Heartache, broken pieces. Oh, we're a mess. Ruined lies. Yep, but that's why he came. Because in and of ourselves, that's what we are. Ruined lives, messes. But your touch, your touch changed everything. And we should be longing for that touch. That's what I think Jesus is trying to say. And he says, but you need to open your eyes. And now you're going to watch, you're going to watch how how beautiful Matthew writes this and how the very next, the very next ending, this next paragraph, next story, the ending of Matthew 20. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, we don't know anything. We don't know what kind of home life these two guys came from. We don't really even know if they're Gentile or Jew, but I think that's... I think that's beside the point. We're talking about two people that can't see. They don't see. They can't physically see. But what do they know? They know who he is. They call him Lord. They call him Son of David. Somehow, if they came from a Jewish family, they had a good mom and dad that taught them the truth. Remember how we talked about last week how important it is that, you know, why did the story of the rich young ruler come right after when Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them. Yeah, but they take time and attention, and we've got a schedule, and uh, we got people to see and places to go, and i got to get my list done. No, I don't have time for that story right now. No, I can't explain that to you right now. And Jesus says, halt, let the little children. Because that very next story of the rich young ruler, I think those parents taught him plenty. They taught him how how to deal with money. They taught him how to honor them and to be good to people, be a 
good person. Huh. Taught them all the the out exterior thing, but somehow they missed all the things that would make them earthly great. I think they did a bang up job. But they didn't teach them about what really mattered. So you've got you've got these two blind men who somehow have learned they've been taught, if they hadn't been taught by parents, somehow they wanted to know because they have heard. They, they might not have been able to see with their eyes, but they've got ears, and they knew that there was a man going around, and his name was Jesus, and he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God, and he was the promised one. So that meant he was the son of David. Boy, they, by saying, Lord, son of David, that spoke volumes. And what did they know that Jesus just loved? Have mercy on us. In other words, what did we, what did we see from Jesus? If you really want to be great, you've got to be a humble before him. So this right away sparked Jesus. Jesus loved his humility. They, they knew who he was, and they respected who he was, and they knew that if anything good was going to happen, it had to be through him. He was the only one that could give mercy. Remember when Jesus said about the rich young ruler, when, when the disciples said, if you can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus answered, with man, things are impossible. There's nothing of this world that can save you. But with God, all things are possible. He's the only one. So these two men knew that. Have mercy on us. Oh, typical, right? Here comes the crowd. Because you see, I mean, the video helped us see a little bit. But you can about imagine that these two blind guys, oh, they were, uh, you talk about a dirty mess. You know, they're, they're not in anything to look at, and they probably weren't anything to smell either. So, okay, isn't that so true? Isn't that so true that if they're not like us, let's just get out of here. Look, at they rebuked him, told him to be quiet. Man, I did, and I say this, I know I've told you this so many times, but I keep thinking about that that group that Jason, that Jason, when after Jason got saved, after being such a rascal and being so naughty and so rebellious, and he did an 180-degree turn when the Lord grabbed him around the neck, and then he, because of what he had been through, he his heart just went out to to those Gothic kids. Oh, creepy! They were so creepy. If I saw them walk downtown Holland, I'd walk on the other side. They just didn't, uh, they didn't settle right with me. And so where does my kid go to? To those kind of kids. Then what does my kid say? I want you to come. I want you to come and help me with these kids. Sure, Jason, I'll bake cookies and you come to the car. And I'll gladly, I'll gladly do that for you. <laughs> and I'll never to this day forget the look that Jason looked at me with. He didn't say it, but the look said it all to me like, shame on you. 
you say all these things and you sing all these things and um, Jesus this and Jesus saves this and all that. That one look said, I was so embarrassed. I got out of the car and I, they're not my kind. And I'm telling you, I fell in love with those kids. I just loved them. And there was one, you talk about some of the home lights, it'd make your blood curdle. It just so sad. And one time Jason was telling me about one of them. And he got a job and we we're so excited for him. And he was worked in that working at a factory in Zealand. And Jason said, Do you know that you know his mom will never make him a lunch. His mom's probably there's probably no food in that house. And I said, what do you mean? You mean he goes all day without lunch? And Jesus said, yeah. I, I remember I, Graham, and I got, a, I, I got a loaf of bread, and I took one of my homemade jams, one of my homemade strawberry jams, and I drove to that factory, and I asked where he was, and they said he's over there. And I said, would you give him this, this bag? And this is his lunch. And they said, we'll be glad to give it to him. And I'm telling you, I left. And I don't care if somebody could have given me a million dollars and it would have not compared to what I felt when I left because of a loaf of bread and some strawberry jam. I think this is what Jesus is trying to say. I mean, this kid, you can't believe the tattoos on this kid and the big the big uh, pierced earrings that, that his ears just stretch around. I mean, it's just, it is, but you know, they need Jesus. And then you got, you got these two men, and they smell bad, and they look bad, and their eyes are probably going all over their head. They, they didn't wear sunglasses like blind people do today. I mean, it was all out there for people to see, and it was terrible. And they said, be quiet. Get out of here. You're a mess. Didn't you just love it? What did they do instead? What did these guys say? Oh, Okay. No, they shouted all the louder. And see, that's what happens when you know them. When you know them, you shout it. You know the non-negotiables, and you don't back away from them. And these guys, even though everybody else was telling them to shut up, they knew what was true, and they let it rip. Now look at, look at verse 32. <laughs> See, aren't we supposed to be like Jesus? I'm talking about, they're, you know, we're walking on the other side of the street because they're different than us and all this kind of thing. What does Jesus do? Jesus stopped. What did he do with the children last week? He stopped. And you know what? All that's going to get done. Our list will get done. We'll get there on time. First things first. And he stopped, and he called out. But did you notice, because I asked you in the questions, does Jesus know these two blind men? Of course he does, because they knew him, so they, uh, he automatically knows them. Because what happened when those two blind, smelly guys accepted Jesus as their Savior and as their Messiah? The angels in heaven rejoice. Of course Jesus knows who they are. They're a couple of his kids. So of course he knows who they are. Does he know what they need? Of course he knows they're blind, physically blind. 
Now, does Jesus know you? Yeah, you're one of his kids. Does he know what you need? You better believe he does. But what does he want from you? As he wants from them, he knows exactly. But what did he want them to do? Ask. Yep. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. Lord, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. You can't, you got to take that slow. You've got to see how this, there's a progression here. When they admitted their need, because Jesus has compassion on us, he loves us, he wants the best for us, He touched their eyes and immediately, when you get a touch from Jesus, are you, um, is it about a a day or two later? When When he touches you, he immediately changes your life. When you receive a touch from him, whether it's maybe, maybe you need a touch from him to calm you down because you're going into a panic. Or maybe you're starting to sink because you're you're starting to worry. When when uh, when whatever whatever you say, Lord, I need a touch from you. What did the Canaanite remember? We talked about what a handy little prayer she had there. Do you remember those three words? Lord, help me. And when he helps you, when he sees your heart, and that goes way back to the first part of Matthew when he says, and I can see whether you're fake or not. I can see whether you, if your motive is right. I can see everything about your heart. And when he sees our heart and he touches our heart in whatever state we're in, whatever circumstance we're going through, whatever we need him for, the Lord's prayer says, I will give you today what you need. And when you receive all that from him, what's the automatic response? What should we want to do? What should be the least thing we want to do? And it's so totally, absolutely opposite of what your human nature wants to do because it says deny yourself, take up your life right now, and dare to what? follow him and he said you know what it won't even be hard when you realize who I am and what I've done for you I know your needs I'm there with you I'm your I want to touch you I want to make you whole I want to be there with you through this you and I I'm going to say it again what a way to live <laughs>